Genesis chapter 17. Let's dive right into the text, beginning with verse 1. <clears throat> we read that when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, at the end of Genesis chapter 16, we're told that Abraham was 86 years old. Now we read as chapter 17 opens that he's 99. This is significant because it informs us that it's been 13 years that has passed since Abraham did something terrible. Abraham in the previous chapter has this fatal error in judgment. He failed to trust in the promises of the Lord. He failed to trust that God would make good in God's way and in God's time. And what did he do? He stepped out in the flesh. He acted on his own behalf. He decided he would fulfill the work of God on his own. And thus he slept with Hagar. Ishmael is produced. This was a terrible idea, a terrible lapse of judgment, an epic failure. It's now been 13 years. 13 years between chapter 16 and chapter 17. And you have to kind of wonder, right? At least I do. That what transpired between these two chapters? Like what took place during these 13 years? And I think it's safe to assume absolutely nothing. Not a thing took place. Now that's not to say that they didn't live their lives and things didn't kind of progress as normal. But nothing happened important to the plans of God. You know, it's, it's reasonable that at this point, as we've been going through Abraham's life, that any interaction Abraham, Abram has with God gets recorded for us. So it appears that these 13 years were silent. Think about that for a minute. 13 long years of God's silence. Following what? Your disobedience and failure. How terrible those 13 years must have been. Have you ever been in a situation where you royally stepped in it? I mean, you did something stupid and you got the silent treatment, whether it be your wife or a parent or a friend. 13 years of silence, nothing recorded for us. You have to imagine that Abraham during these years begins to wonder, if the silence might be an indicator that God's plans for his life had been ruined by his poor decisions. Which leads me to ask, does this sentiment resonate with you in any way? Like, have you made such a mistake at some point in your life that you are convinced that your relationship with God was all but finished? I mean, you would concede that you're still going to go heaven and all that. Jesus' work is still sufficient. But as far as like how God could use you, the mistakes that you made have, have, have kind of caused irreparable damage. That as a result of your poor choices, there's no doubt in your mind that you've been sidelined. Set on the shelf. You know the truth. The truth is that many people who have come to the cross and begin this exciting journey with Jesus only to at some point later screw up and fall headlong back into the very sinful lifestyle they had been saved from 
do end up possessing such a mindset. You know, the reality is that many of you have or have had such an experience. Pastor Zach, Jesus did so much for me. I mean, he died on the cross to save me from my sins. You'll never believe what I did. Like, you don't come back from that. There's no more hope for that. Zach, I've ruined that new chance that I've been given, that new life Jesus gave me. I, I know he loves me, but there's no way he could now still use me. Zach, my marriage failed. I got a divorce. It's anathema. God can't use me in any way. I started using again. I fell off the wagon. My girlfriend and I made a priority to be pure, but now we're, we're sleeping together again. I got a DUI. God can't use me. I got caught looking at porn. That's it. That's it. No one would trust me. No one would look at me the same. And that list can go on and on and on. Th- stupid things we do. That as a result, we end up concluding that it's done. Now, this is what I'm confident of this morning. There's two things, really. First, I'm confident there are some of you struggling with these very notions right now. Stats say that that's the case. But the second thing I'm also confident of is at some point, if you're not having these thoughts right now, you will. At some point in your life, these thoughts will cross your mind. It's over. And here's why I'm confident of these two points. I'm going to break something for you, point of revelation. You should brace yourself. The reason I'm confident of these two points is that your failure is inevitable. I know that's a shocker, right? I mean, you're the most perfect person you know. But we know you. And your failure is inevitable. My failure is inevitable. And yet, even with that being the case, as we're going to see in this man who's failed, Abraham, as we're going to see in his life, I hope you know this morning that the Lord appears with a powerful message. In this chapter, we're going to see five things that the Lord says to Abram after these 13 years of silence to reiterate that God still had things under control. Five things. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot them down. One, God reveals to Abram a new aspect of his person. Two, God reminds Abram of his righteous standing. Thirdly, God reiterates to Abram his amazing grace. Fourth, God restates to Abram his unwavering promise. Five, God reestablishes the essence of their relationship. If you didn't get them all written down, don't worry. We'll go back through them first. We see that God, the first thing he does is he reveals to Abram a new aspect of his person. He's failed, God appears, and he reveals a new part of who he is. Notice how God breaks these 13 years of silence. He says, I am almighty God. In the Hebrew, this name for God is interesting because it's actually a compound uh, word. It's El Shaddai. The word El, this name for God, spoke of the raw, 
masculine strength and authority of, of, of God. In the beginning, God, El, the strength of God. The word Shaddai is different, though. It's derived from the feminine word that literally means breast. The word signified one who nourished or nourishes. This is the first time this compound name for God is used in the scriptures. Now, what makes it fascinating is that it uniquely encompasses two things. El Shaddai encompasses both the masculine as well as the feminine. It combines the strength of man with the tenderness of a woman. In Abram's place of failure, what was he going to need? Well, on one aspect, he was going to need the strong hand of God, El. But that would be balanced with what? Shaddai, God's tenderness. His strength would be measured with compassion. Can you imagine what Abram's initial reaction might have been the very moment the Lord appeared to him after 13 years of silence? I don't think it was, uh, it was really encouraging. You haven't heard from God in 13 years, the Lord appears. Uh-oh. Like, that doesn't seem like a very good thing. He hasn't heard at all from the Lord in any way about his blunder with Hagar. The Lord has appeared to Hagar, has given Hagar a word that his name would be Ishmael, but God has not directly gone on the record concerning Abraham and his failure. Now the Lord appears after 13 years. I'm sure this didn't produce delight or even relief. Instead, I can imagine, if it were me, that this would have yielded fear. Like, the Lord's, the Lord's appears. What, would he, what was he going to do? Like, why was he now here? Why after 13 years, what would he say? Uncertainty flooded Abram's heart. I want you to know this morning that if you failed and you're questioning your standing with God, there is absolutely zero reason that you should fear his presence. I'm sure the words that followed the Lord's appearing, I am El Shaddai, Almighty God. Whatever trepidation, whatever angst, whatever fear Abram might have had, man, imagine the comfort to his anxious heart to hear those words. I'm strong, but I'm also tender. This moment was not God coming to Abram, planning to whip him good. This was not Abram's day of reckoning. Instead, the Lord appeared. Why? He appeared not to do Abram in, but instead to minister to him in the same manner of love a mother would have for her child, right? Your boys, your children get in trouble at home. They want mom. They don't want dad. Go to your room. Dad's going to be home. You'll deal with dad. No, I'm so sorry. They would much rather deal with whom? Mom. Because even with her vengeance, there's still a mother's love. It's how she's wired. A mother's going to naturally gravitate towards that measure of mercy, that measure of compassion. Dad, a little of that. 
Now it's time for the strong hand of justice, the right hand of fellowship, the right foot of love. There's no room for tenderness. we got to deal with the issue. And yet God comes and he says, I'm almighty God. Yeah, I'm going to have to deal with this, Abram. But know that I'm going to deal with it with compassion, with love, with tenderness. Notice what else God says to Abram. He says, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, for starters, please understand, the English translation here kind of butchers it because it kind of makes this statement seem as though God is now going to be establishing a new covenant with Abram. And yet this word make would be better translated from the Hebrew to the English as deliverer or to grant. In essence, God is reminding Abram, a man broken by his failure, that while there might be real consequences for his decisions, this decision to sleep with Hagar, the birth of Ishmael, the covenant that God had originally signed with Abram, the chapter before that, remained intact. How glorious. And the exchange that follows. Please note, this covenant originally signed by God, a covenant made with Abram, aside from Abram's involvement, God here comes back and he says, I'm going to make good on this covenant. I'm going to deliver this covenant. The rest of the chapter, my covenant, you're going to find that phrase nine times. There's a lot of, in this chapter, God talking and Abram listening. And God's going to say my covenant nine times. And then in an astounding 24 times, we're going to find this phrase, I will. This chapter is all about what God is going to do. Though undoubtedly Abram made a royal mess of things, what a wonderful reality to know that God's covenant wasn't predicated upon his performance, but was instead founded on his ability, God's ability to make good on his promises, regardless of the stupid things that Abram did. Hey, I am almighty God. It's all right, Abram. And that promise, there's no need to worry. I'm going to make good on it. I'm still going to deliver it. But there's an, another thing that happens here. We're also, we also see that God reminds Abram of his righteous standing. Look at the, the exhortation that God gives to Abram. He says, walk before me and be blameless. What an interesting command in light of everything that's been going on in Abram's life. Now, to understand what it is God's saying in this phrase, like I want to kind of unpack it working backwards. First, this phrase, and be blameless. It's actually in the Hebrew one word. Can be translated to be complete, to be whole. The King James Version of this passage translates this directive as be perfect. Now this was, and it's important to note, not something that God exhorts Abram to do. But rather it was something God is reminding him he was something he was to be, not to do. This phrase, walk before me, shouldn't be overanalyzed. It's really nothing more than an invitation for Abram to come and meet with God face to face. How incredible it is to think that God would invite a failed man like Abram to come and to stand before him how? As one who was perfect as one blameless, as one whole, as one complete. Now, Abram might have been thinking, but I'm not that. 
I just failed. Your buddies might be thinking, you're not that, you just failed. But from God's perspective, how does he still see you? As if you haven't failed. Abraham is already righteous. And he's like, I am almighty God. I'm going to deliver my promise. Come here, Abram. Come here. You're blameless. You're perfect. Man, what grace. There's a Christian buzzword that we don't often use in, in, in normal vernacular or speech that, that we do find kind of all over Christian circles. And that's the word repentance. I mean, when was the last time you used the word repent or repentance in like normal conversation? Probably doesn't happen. But the church, we use it all the time. It's found predominantly in Christian circles. And yet the sad truth is that most people don't fully grasp the role of repentance as it pertains to the Christian. When you find the word repent in the Hebrew, you're going to encounter two different words. One means to be sorrowful or to be filled with regret. The other word means uh, to return or to turn back. It's the second Hebrew word that presents a concept the New Testament authors pick up on. In the Greek, metateo, it was a military term. Repentance, to repent. It meant to, to about face, to stop, turn around, and head the opposite direction. Repentance in the New Testament context, was a changing of the mind that fostered a change of direction. You see, the problem with repentance is that so often the emphasis of Christians ends up being placed solely on what a person is supposed to turn from as opposed to what they're supposed to be turning to. Consider, when you first became a Christian, how did repentance manifest in your life? Very simple. You stopped what you were doing. You rejected the world. You about face and came to the cross. And you said, all of this matters not for that. You came to Jesus. Repentance was turning from the world, but it was coming to Christ, placing your faith in Christ. Now, this is what so many people get wrong. Repentance? How should repentance manifest in the life of the Christian? the person who's come to the cross. Ironically, the exact same way it did originally. Like, the point is, is that it doesn't change. Repentance is way more than ceasing from sin. Repentance, like we see with Abram, is responding to the appeal of God to return to the cross, the place of salvation, the ultimate demonstration of grace, the essence of what gives you a position before God that makes you righteous. Abram had failed. And so what does God invite him to do? To come back. Why? Well, but I'm not worthy. Oh, you are. But I'm not right. But you are. You see, from God's perspective, that sin it's been cast as far as the east as the west. Though your sins were as scarlet, they've been made white as snow already before this. We're told that Abram believed, believed what? The coming Savior. And it had been accounted to him by God for that belief as righteousness. He was a righteous man. So God is saying, come on, man. Come before me. 
Be blameless. Be what you are. Perfect. That's mind-blowing. What God is doing right from the beginning is appealing to Abram to repent. He reminds him who he is, that he's a God of compassion. But then he invites Abram into the very presence of God to be reminded of his status before God. While Abram had failed, God's promises had not been detoured. But most importantly, while Abram had failed, his right standing before God had not been tarnished. Abram was still a righteous man in the eyes of God. If you failed this week, if you're in the place of failure, of shortcoming, I want you to know, from God's perspective, you're still as righteous as you were before you failed. Once you've come to the cross, you are right. It's a standing. It doesn't change. It's a position. Christian, in the place of your glaring failures and this awesome reality, always remember, there is, Romans 8, 1 and 2, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've failed, there is no reason for you to be condemned. Jesus' sacrifice is still sufficient. Therefore, Hebrews 4.16, hey, in the place of failure, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain and find mercy and help in your time of need. There's a third thing God does. God, we're told, reiterates to Abram his amazing grace. So, <clears throat> reveals the new aspects of his person, reminds him of his identity, but then demonstrates all over again his grace. Look at verses 3 and 5, and then we're going to jump forward to just verse 15 for a minute. We read that Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And then jump to verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now before God restates his promises to Abram, there is this amazing statement that jumps out of this passage to me. And it's not the name changes. We'll get to that in a moment. Did you notice something that is kind of mind-boggling? It's not an accident. God tells Abram, look at it. I have made you a father. What? The son of promise hadn't been given yet, right? But God is saying, in regards to my, I've already made good on these things. Because Abram had been willing to place his face in the com- faith in the coming Savior, God's promises were based on his unmerited favor for Abram, independent of Abram's performance. As a result, God's work, the work God had promised to do in Abram's life, was just as good as done, just as good as accomplished. I have made you. This is past tense. That's how confident God is that his promises will be carried forth. He was working in Abram. And who Abram would become as a result had already been determined by God. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, Paul makes an incredible statement about you. And I, and I just want to read it for you. Paul says, Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means you have been given the whole pie already. Just as Jesus chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy without blame before him in love, he predestined you as adoption, to adoption, as sons of Jesus Christ and daughters, according to the good will of his pleasure, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made you accepted in the beloved, has made you. It's all past tense with future promises. Must have blown Abram's mind, right? When God comes and says, man, I've already made you a dad. I've already made you a father. Hold tight, that promise is coming. Now, aside from that reality, I love the fact that God, he gives a 99-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman new names. Like in a very interesting twist. In this moment, and thank goodness it's finally here so I can call him Abraham and not Abram. And Sarah, instead of Sarai, tried really hard. Stay good with that. But notice God changes Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. Now, before we unpack the meaning there, you should keep in mind that in ancient cultures, ancient times, the ability to name something was significant. Because the act of naming something demonstrated dominion authority, responsibility over that thing. Like, for example, Adam was given by God the task of naming the animals. Why? Because Adam was to have dominion and responsibility over the animals. Additionally, how did Adam get his name? God gave it to him. God, naming man, demonstrates his authority over man, but then it's man's role to also name whom? The woman. We have a hierarchy of responsibility and authority, not domination, but dominion. The giving of a name, my point, is important in Scripture. It's significant. Now, while we have no mention of God having any role in the naming of Abram or Sarai, this act of renaming them demonstrates now God's complete dominion over their lives and the giving of a new identity. This name Abram, the name given to him in his worldly life. It was literally meant, or the meaning, was exalted father. What a joke, right? Like the world named him exalted father and then rubbed salt in the wound that he was not a father. What a bummer. So what happens? God renames him from Abram to Abraham from exalted father to father of many nations. Sarai means princess. We've already been told she was a very beautiful woman. The name Sarah, though, means mother of nations. So the question begs, how did Abram become Abraham? And how did Sarai become Sarah? How did the exalted father and the princess without kids respectively become the father and mother of many nations? Do either of them do a thing to demand this name and destiny change? No. Like, the 
key point is that God, God acts on His own and totally independent of them redefines who they were supposed to be. And how did God practically do this? Amazingly, all He did was add one Hebrew letter to their name. Now, I'm not going to get into all the, the linguistics behind this, but the, the English A-H inserted into Abram to make him Abraham, and the A-H uh, that replaces uh, the A-I at the end of Sarai to make her Sarah, that's a fascinating thing. This A-H, this singular letter that God adds to both of their names, it's the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, that might not mean anything initially, but as it pertains to biblical numerology, and the Bible's all about numbers as well, and how numbers have specific meanings, seven being completion, eight being new beginning, on and on, five was a significant number. It was the number of grace. We are looking at the genesis of grace. So how did Abram and Sarah literally receive these new identities, which corresponded to their new destiny? <laughs> the exact same way you and I do. Not works, not effort, but God's grace. It's just something God gives us. Something God makes us. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're told that if anyone is in Christ, if you're in Christ, what are you now? Ah, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. I also like the fact that God gives them a name. Because do you realize that God's going to give you a name? In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, we read to him or her who overcomes. Jesus promises that he will give to that person a white stone. And on that stone, a new name written down which no one knows except him who receives it. You know, Jesus has a new name in mind for you, and he's already in the process of making you into that person. Fourthly, we see that God restates to Abram his unwavering promises. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. A lot of I will make, right? Things God will do. Kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I give to you also and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. This covenant that God made with Abraham to the descendants that would follow. It's being described here with this interesting phrase that it's an everlasting covenant. It's an everlasting possession, an everlasting promise. This word everlasting, it implies that the promise God had made to Abram would possess a continuous existence. They would, these promises be perpetual. They would be indefinite. It's incredible. God would give Abram a son. That son would become a nation. That nation would possess all of the land. Imagine what relief this reiteration 
of God's promise to work in and through his life, how incredible that moment would have been, that reassurance, after he had been questioning whether or not God would do that for the last 13 years. Like, don't detach yourself from that reality. For 13 years, he's thinking, I failed and God's done. And God comes and says, oh, no, 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 no. It's an everlasting promise. I hope you know in the moment of failure. I hope you hold fast to this. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, we're told, For all the promises of God in Jesus are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Fifthly, finally, we see here that God reestablishes the essence of their relationship. And we're going to read a a chunk of scripture beginning with verse 9. We're told that God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or, brought, or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house, he who is bought with money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the circumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person will be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her. I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Now, just in case you aren't aware of what circumcision is, let me just take a very quick second and define it ever so carefully, using Urban Dictionary. Urban Dictionary defines circumcision as, quote, a surgical procedure that removes a male's foreskin, end quote. Not exactly the definition you thought you were going to get from Urban Dictionary. I like to define circumcision, or at least illustrate it with a kind of a different picture. Circumcision is a surgery that turns a male's turtleneck into a crew. Now it's important to note, with that out of the way, the practice of circumcision, the practice of circumcision, is not being invented right here. There's ample evidence historically to show that circumcision was was already a practice in various cultures before this moment. God doesn't invent circumcision. Abram doesn't invent circumcision. But instead, what is happening here is that God is taking circumcision and he's instituting that practice to be, and look at it, a sign of the covenant. The covenant he made with Abram. And what was that covenant? The covenant was that by God's grace, he would provide a savior to save man from his sin so that by faith in this man's sacrifice, we might all become righteous before God. That is the covenant. Circumcision is now the sign of that covenant. Now, those circumcision would be mandated within the Mosaic law. You can read about that on your own in Leviticus 12. This passage is doing something interesting. It's making it clear that the purpose of circumcision predated the law. 
You see, circumcision was never, ever, ever to be the sign of the law. This works-based righteousness. It came way before the law. Circumcision was rather a reminder of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Namely, that God would provide a Savior through his lineage. Not works creating righteousness, but righteousness being yielded by faith in a Savior. That is what circumcision as a sign intended to represent. Now consider the context. Abram has acted out in his own efforts to fulfill the promises of God. So what is God now doing? He's instituting circumcision to nail down an important point to Abraham. Get out of the way. You see, what God is doing here is he's reestablishing the fact that their relationship and the fulfillment of God's future work in his life could only be yielded. It would only be manifested by God's grace and not at all by Abraham's flesh, his works. To this point in Romans 4 verse 11, the Apostle Paul wrote that Abraham, quote, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had received before when he was uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised. And in context, Paul's talking about Gentiles who are giving their lives to Jesus. He says that righteousness might be imputed to them also. While the Jewish people had come to see circumcision as an external act that brought with it God's acceptance, an entry into the family of Abraham, which is why they wanted Gentile Christians to be circumcised, the truth is that Genesis 17 demonstrates the exact opposite reality. Circumcision was God's way of hammering home the point that no natural work of man's flesh could ever substitute for a supernatural work of God. This was a painful reminder. David Guzik rightly observed, quote, circumcision is a cutting away of the flesh and an appropriate sign of the covenant of those who should no longer put trust in the flesh. Circumcision was never intended to represent man's obedience, but was instead an act that physically represented one's faith in a coming Savior. Circumcision was God's way of emphasizing to Abram and to everyone who would follow Abram up into the cross, looking forward to the coming Savior. How powerless the flesh would always be as it pertained to fulfilling the promises of God. Which, for the student of Scripture, explains why the act of circumcision was no longer required from anyone after the cross. If it's all an act of faith looking to the Savior, then once the Savior is given, circumcision really doesn't have a point anymore, a purpose. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 5, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But what does avail something? He says, faith working through love. 
this act of cutting away the flesh was to demonstrate a faith that rejected human activity in the place of divine involvement. (laughs) And God is hammering this point home to Abram after his mistake of the flesh with Hagar. God is saying, Abram, this is what you need to do to remind you to stop doing things, to get out of the way, to allow me to work. Furthermore, it should also be noted, I find this interesting, the procedure of circumcision was to occur in the life of a child when? On the eighth day following their birth. Once again, biblical numerology tells us that number eight represents new beginnings. A new creation can literally represent being born again. How fascinating that God institutes circumcision directly directly after Abram has been given this new identity through God's grace. Imagine that. Abram. No longer Abram. I'm going to make you Abraham. The father of many nations. And how am I doing that? My grace. I gave you a letter. You didn't do anything. I did it. And then what he says, on the eighth day, have people circumcised. Why? Because by this act of God's grace, I'm now born again. I'm now a new creation. All very cool. Verse 17, so Abram, Abraham, see I'm in that habit, Abram. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And he said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, it would be very easy to see this exchange as Abraham finding hilarity and all the things God just said he was going to accomplish. That in a way, this was maybe a laugh of unbelief or, or a mocking laugh But Romans chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, gives us deeper insight into what's happening in this very passage. Paul says that Abraham, not being weak in faith, did not consider his own body, already dead, since he was 100 years old, did not consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, God would be able to perform. Abraham fell on his face and laughed, not out of unbelief, but because he was simply overcome with amazement at all that God was going to do. Like his laughter manifested out of a wonderment Concerning God's grace. I mean, having a child when he's 100 and Sarah being 90, boom, it's a mind-blowing thing. He's not laughing out of unbelief. He's laughing out of just how awesome that promise really is. That future work would really look like. Additionally, this statement, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I I don't see this as, as Abraham somehow telling God, hey, that sounds great but you know you can just use Ishmael. Like instead, I think what Abraham's doing here is he's appealing on behalf of the son he knows isn't the son of promise. Appealing on behalf of an innocent son who he loves. 
Well, God said, verse 19, no, 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 no. There's only one other. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful. I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes. I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. And God finished talking with him. God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, everyone born in his house, all who were bought with money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, takes them, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. I mean, these guys have to be really convinced that Abraham has gotten some divine revelation for Abraham to come back into the tent and be like, circle the troops, got to tell you, we're going to do something. It's going to be awesome. God said we need to do this. And they're like, sweet Abraham, what are we doing? He's like, well, drop the drawers. <laughs> what? Like this, huh? And yet he takes everyone. Demonstration of faith. Amazing. They're all demonstrating faith in the fact that Abraham is really walking with God for you to get me to do that. But we're told that Abraham was 99 years old. When he was circumcised, so he leads by example, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old. I mean, if being a middle schooler wasn't bad enough, <laughs> he's 13. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised, his son Ishmael, all the men born into his house, yada, 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 they're all circumcised. Now, in closing, if you've blown it this morning, be glad you don't have to get circumcised. Amen. But on a more serious note, I hope you don't question your status with God, your standing with your Father. Like, find great encouragement in the way that Abraham is approached by God because that is how God is approaching you this morning. There's no reason to fear as a matter of fact, this morning, I believe God is wanting you to know that he is abundant, abundantly compassionate. If you've blown it, God wants you to know that he is just as much the Shaddai as he is the El, just as much of a mother as he is a father, that he loves you and he cares for you. God this morning is trying to tell you what he's telling Abraham. That's, it's okay if you failed. <laughs> God already knows you did. And your failure was largely expected. But regardless, take heart that no regardless of what you've done, you are still righteous in the eyes of God through the work of Jesus on the cross. Because that is what made you righteous, what makes you righteous, and will continue to make you righteous. When you stand before God one day, you will want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. What is the one work that makes us well, that makes us whole, 
that makes us complete. It's accepting what Jesus did on our behalf. And anytime we fail, it's returning back to the cross. Say, I was unworthy then, I'm unworthy now. It is your grace that makes me sufficient then and still makes me sufficient today. Because your righteousness exists apart from your works. Even when you fail, you're still all right. You're all righteous. His grace is sufficient. His promise is sure. He's working on you. Even when you don't know it. This morning, remember who you are. That's the key. If you blew it, you're not that person. You're a new creation in Christ. You're no longer that individual. God has given you a new identity to walk in, to live in, to, to live through the identity of Jesus. So instead of walking in condemnation, instead of beating yourself up, which we're so good at, God is asking you very simply this morning. Stop trying and come back to the cross and let him make you into the person that only he can. Jesus is the only person that can make you godly, holy. You can try with all of your might to please God. The irony, you already please him because you have the spirit living in you. You see, the manifestation of, of, our, of our godly lives, of the lives we live, that manifestation, that motivation is not that I'm trying to do things to demonstrate to God how much I love him. It's that I realize how much he loves me and that changes everything else. You don't have to act to tell God how much you love him. You should act out of how much he loves you. It's just a very simple switch, a simple change in perspective. Don't act to love God. Act because he loves you. And so if, if Andy, if the worship team could come forward.